So tonight, um, for the Zen flavor, and also as a little treat, uh, I'm going to do what is called as the 10 Oxerding pictures. And not, as it's written on a Dharmacid talk, the 100 Oxerding picture. <laughs> 10 might be enough. And so these oxerding uh, pictures, image, uh, you find in uh, all Zen tradition, in China, in Korea, in Japan, in Vietnam. You find them in uh, black ink, generally, but you can also find them uh, in color, uh, in paint, around temples. And so they were created in China in uh, possibly, I don't know, possibly the 10th century, 11th century. And then so you had the image, which they, they went from 6 to 8 to 10. And then they started to have a tradition of not only having the image, but also having po poems to go with it. And uh, then people had the commentary to the poem or made that, their own poem, and then people started to do different type of pictures. So what I want to do uh, tonight is actually to look at the titles of the pictures. And uh, because it seems to me that actually the 10 observing picture, uh, the way it's more traditionally seen, is in a way as um, development of, in meditation. And personally, I like to see it on a longer framework of actually developing a meditative life over time. And so that's why in a way it's kind of like um, the path as a series of pictures, as a series of image, of kind of like... But what I found interesting with these pictures is that actually they're not linear. I mean, they're presented as linear, one, two, three, to ten. But personally, I think they're more like kind of like... A, um, a spiral. So we might, you know, come back to certain of this picture throughout our life, our life of practice. So, what are they called the ox herding picture? Some might call them the bull picture. And basically the story, there is a story about a little ox herder, generally with little pigtail, and he has an ox, a bull, a cow, whatever. It's a kind of the cow type. But very likely it's, a, it's kind of more like a zebu, kind of like a, uh, a ox, Asian cow, Asian ox. So, the ox, you have the ox, you have the ox herder. And the first picture is called Searching for the Ox. And so you have the little oxerder looking, looking. Is it over there? Is it over here? And so the picture is a little oxerder looking like really looking for something and there is a bit of nature, maybe a butterfly here, a bird there. You hear this? Is it there? And to me it's very much a picture of in a way that something is missing. In a way we are looking for something. So I would say it's even before we start on the path, that moment where we think, hmm, maybe I need to do something about this. Or maybe there is something, I don't know what it is, but I'm looking for it. And sometimes it's just out of curiosity. Sometimes it can be out of suffering. And it's kind of like exploring. It's kind of like, I would nearly say, awakening to possibility. Awakening to something could be different. Awakening to, hmm, can I look for something? Can I search for something? Can I find something? And to me, in my case, it was like um, I was a young woman, quite idealistic. 16, 18, and I wanted to change the world. 
I wanted to change my mind. And realizing I just could not change it like that. I could tell myself, don't be egoist, no effect. Don't be jealous, no effect. You know, like there was all this idea to love everybody to the same degree, and it did not seem to work. And so I was having this kind of idealism. And at the same time, I could not do it. There was something missing. There was something that kind of... So I was kind of looking for something. How can I do something about it? And actually what started me on the path, I would say it's kind of like not knowing but looking. And then finding the Dharmapada in somebody's house and having nothing better to do looking at it. And at one point, the Buddha saying, before you want to change others, maybe you should change yourself first. And I thought, yeah, I mean, before I want everybody to be peaceful, maybe I should be peaceful first. You know, before I want everybody to be non-egoist, maybe I should try it. And to me, this is, was in a way the turning point. But for having the turning point, you in a way need to kind of, you know, look for something, wonder. You know, and I, I would say it can happen at any time. It can happen sometime with young children. It can happen when you are in your 20s or in your 50s or 70s. It can happen any time. And that moment, I could say, is when we start on the path, when we're like a little oxerd looking, searching. Then you have the next one, which is seeing the footprint. So here the oxerder is on the path and he see footprints. And they don't look like ox footprints. They don't look like elephant footprints or tire footprints. They're like little ox footprints. And I think that moment is when we actually start to find something which speaks to us. So we kind of, first we're searching. And then in a way to move on from just searching, we need to find something we can respond to. But we're not totally sure. I mean, you see footprints. But what are they, these footprints? Because then they just kind of, they're not the real thing. They're just kind of like inkling. They're just like little traces. And for me, I remember it was when I was starting to kind of uh, get interested in uh, the Zen tradition and I would... Uh, read at that time you did not have many books in the 70s but there was a few and i remember you know hearing the path is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose ah yes 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 you know i like this you know you would hear i like the chinese poetry the birds fly through the sky, but leave no traces. The shadow of the bamboo sweeps the, sweeps the stairs, and no dust is moved. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So in a way, it's kind of like um, something strikes you, something strikes you, something is evoked. It's evocative. But at the same time, it's not, I personally feel it's not very real in a way. It's kind of like, it speaks to us, it has a certain taste, it's kind of like, sometimes it can be a little intoxicating, all these really profound, beautiful, amazing, funny things. And at the same time, it's, what can we do with this? You know, it's kind of like, what do I do with this? And then you have the next one. And it's seeing the ox, seeing actually the picture is about seeing the ox tail. So you have a little bush and then you just have the ox tail moving a little. And this I think is kind of when we kind of start to think make, maybe we can try to go beyond the words, try to go beyond the, the kind of like the evocative, poetic thing. And then we think, okay, you know, this is interesting. I am going to do this. 
I'm going to try it. But it's still a little inchoate. We're not really totally knowing what we are doing. And I remember when I was 19, having got hold of Krishna Krishnamurti book, which was uh, very big in those days. Krishnamurti was one of the big, big, big person, like uh, Edgar Tolle now. Uh, things have moved on. And so I got a book of uh, Krishnamurti, which really was about awareness. Be aware. So I decided, okay, be aware. I'm going to do this. But I'm going to do this really seriously. So I took a blanket and I decided to go up the mountain for three days, fast so that I would not have to eat anything, and be aware. So I found a nice field, a little place I could sleep with my blanket, and I would sit in the field, the mountain, beautiful, the book, be aware. <laughs> book, be aware. And then I lasted about a day, one night. And then I thought, be aware of what? Be aware how? Because, you know, I was following what I thought was instruction, be aware, and I did not feel anything was going on. I did not feel anything was happening. So I kind of dropped Krishnamurti and be aware. And then in those days, you know, there were so many different things. There were so many different things. Not many of them. That's what we kind of were looking for, for them, because it's not now. There are so many, but really so much more. Then it was really just here, one there. And I would say my, one of my favorite ones was uh, through a friend of a friend, hearing of a Taoism by correspondence, by writing. So you would get a letter with instructions. And my uh, most abject failure was the instruction was to lie down and to manage to imagine myself floating in the corner of the ceiling. And many a night, I lie down and try to kind of project myself <laughs> to the ceiling. Uh, we've uh, no, uh, never worked. So I was really not a good candidate. Either the technique was not good, either I was not a good candidate for that. So to me, it's kind of like, you know, uh, at that stage when we see the traces, Especially nowadays, we encounter so many traces, so many footprints, so many ways we could do something. And which one to choose? Which one to go for? And it's really, I think, it's kind of like, we don't know. We meet different things, but we don't really, in a way, connect. Because in a way, to connect to something, to start to do something, in a way, the question is, because often, uh, what is presented to us is the shortest path, the most complete path, uh, the quickest one, uh, the superior one, of course, and those other ones are inferior. And I mean, it's hard to know. And I wonder if it would not be better, in a way, to base it on what is uh, most meaningful for me, what makes sense. What can I apply? How can I use it? So I think at that stage, I think we have to look at what is in a way the criteria for deciding to choose something and in a way going with it. And then the next one is number four, catching the ox. And in this one, finally the ox herder with a rope has caught the ox. But the ox really doesn't want to be caught. And so this is really, for me, this is a picture of power, of kind of energy, of kind of really kind of, uh, you see the, this little ox there trying to kind of, you know, control, hold onto this ox and being going here, going there. And to me, this picture is when finally, you know, we heard the poems, we kind of, heard the talks, and then finally we decide, now I am going to do it. Now I'm going to choose one method, and I'm going to do that. 
And then what we discover is that is the poems are wonderful. But as you, for example, if you choose the Buddhist path, and then if you choose a meditative path, and then you start to meditate. And in a way, it's nothing like the poems. <laughs> it's nothing like this peace everybody talks about and this clarity everybody talks about. What it feels like is generally painful, agitated, and nothing happens. So you hear all about this awakening and this inside, and you're just sitting there, kind of trying to sit there. And to me, is actually at that moment where, in a way, we need what is called in Zen, great determination. But at that moment, in a way, you decide, I am going to do this. I'm really going to do this even if it's not easy. Because I think there is a moment when we really try to do something, try to do the meditation, try to be ethical, try to be wise in whatever way we cultivate that, that actually it's not so easy. Because in a way there is this whole organic body and mind which has really been habituated to think in certain way, feel in certain way, relate in certain way. And as Stephen, in a way, saying, it's kind of you going against the stream of habit. And so to me, I think what's happening there is kind of in a way we meet our being. We meet the habit. At the same time, you have two things meeting. In a way, it's kind of nearly the creative potential meeting the habituation. And he's having, in a way, the courage, as I say in uh, Zen, the great courage to do it and actually to be with it, to not be disheartened. Because I think, in a way, we can be easily disheartened <sighs> by if we, as I mentioned at the beginning, if we think too much about the effect. This is not working. But actually, I think this picture is really, in a way, the start of the cultivation. That we're really getting into the cultivation and being careful of just looking at the effect. But I think up to then, we were looking at the effect. If only if I was peaceful, if only if I was clear. But how do I become clear? How do I become peaceful? It takes time to release the habit. And then you have uh, number five. And number five is tending the ox. And there, the ox herder and the ox are walking together. And, but the ox herder is still holding the rope. But the rope is loose, but still is holding the rope. And so this, I think, this picture is when we kind of, we finally gone beyond, I would say, the, the battle, the fight. And then we settle in the meditation. And we kind of start to know how to do it. The body and mind complex get more familiar with it, more adapted to it. And you know, it flows more. It's easier. It doesn't mean that we have, you know, the great awakening or whatever it is, but we can do it. And it's not like this fight every minute forcing yourself to do something, but just actually having, I would say, this enthusiasm of doing something, of tending something, of step by step trying to do something. But it becomes easier, and then that's where it can be a little kind of, you know, problematic, because you might, at that moment, get little moment where it doesn't flow so much. And I think that's why the little ox is still holding onto the ox, just in case. I mean, it looks quite fine, but who knows? It could kind of, you know, again, really go kind of all over the place. So he has to be careful, but he doesn't have to use so much energy. And to me, it's kind of like when first we become more confident, 
And I remember when I was in Korea, I, uh, every, you sat for three months in the winter, in the summer, and then in the spring, in the autumn, you could go and visit various teachers. And I used to visit this teacher regularly, Master Kyungbong. And generally I took a bus and another bus and another bus and I walked for an hour. And then I would meet the great master, one of the great Zen master of Korea. So I arrive and I bow to the master and I say, Master, master, what can I do to make my question vivid, really bright, really alive? And he just sit there. I wait a bit, nothing happens. Master, master, would you say a little something? <laughs> and then he says, you already know it. And that was that. It was clear I was not going to get more. You already know it. All right, so I bow, I get out, and I felt a bit short-changed, you know. <laughs> Three bars, an hour walk, four words, bit, you know. I was expecting a little more. But then as I was walking back, suddenly it really hit me that it was true. I already knew what I had to do. The thing is that I had to do it. He could not do it for me. And that's when I realized, we, you know, there is this stage where we start to become our own teacher. But it's also a stage where, you know, where you become, you could even say, enthusiastic. I'm going to do it. I'm going to really, you know, this is it. I'm going to go for it. And then you bring all this enthusiasm, and psh, nothing happened. I have a stage like that, you know, in my practice where, you know, I try and I try and I question and I push and I push and nothing happens. One day, I mean, you have uh, seven days, but us it was three months, you know. One day, second day, third day. And I think it's also being patient with that, being patient with the fact that Right now, not much is going on. But it doesn't mean I'm not cultivating. And what I found often is that you seem to have this blockage. And then suddenly, it's like a little something happened. And then it go by itself. I remember there was um, one day, again, we were the great meditator. That time in the monastery of monks. And we're just living on the side of a few ladies. And that winter, they decided not to do the seven-day non-sleep week. Ooh. Lazy. <laughs> so we, the lady, we thought, four ladies, Western, Westerner, we're going to do it. They don't want to do it, this non-sleep, we're going to do it. Four days, not seven, but we'll do it for four days. So we're going to do this non-sleep week for non-sleep time. So you sit, basically you sit all day, all night. I mean, you still, you know, eat and walk a bit, you know, things like that. So we start to sit, you know. And nothing was going on. It was just, you know, trying to keep awake, you know. <laughs> One day, two days. And by the second day, I realized how it worked. Because by the second day, I was so tired that actually I could not proliferate. I could not exaggerate. I could not think about anything. I was too tired. And then if I just did the wadu, just did the question, it went on its own. There was no obstacle to it whatsoever. I understood how it worked, but it was fairly exhausting. And that was interesting, that thing where you're so tired, you think nothing is going to happen, suddenly it just goes on its own, and you really don't have to do anything. That's why it showed me 
to not put so much emphasis on the effect, but actually more on the cultivation. And then you have the number six. And number six is riding the ox back home. And it's a lovely picture. You have the ox herder, he's on the back of the ox, playing the flute. And it's really kind of a very joyous picture. And for me, this actually shows that all this uh, meditation is not just gloom and doom. It's kind of really, at some point, it's to help us actually to be lighter, to be more at ease with ourselves, more at ease with others, more at ease with the practice, that over time there is a lightness that comes to it. And this is what I observed in the monastery, that often we would come at the beginning and we were all so keen and we were all so dead serious about, you know, the great matter of birth and death. But the more you practice, especially if I look at all the monks or the nuns, the more the people practice, you seem to feel like there was a lightness to them. There was a kind of like a... They were just kind of... Even the way they walked, the way they made jokes. And it was lovely to see this. And I think it's very important, that quality, to bring to the practice. Like there is this wonderful um, image in the text that we should come to the practice with the same enthusiasm, with the same joy as a thirsty elephant, a hot, thirsty, bothered elephant would jump into a cold pool. Isn't it wonderful? So this kind of, I think this is, a, for me, this is a very important stage of like kind of that lightness, that joy. Joy in the practice, joy in the life, in being with people, and really that lightness, so that it doesn't make you kind of so serious. I think this is an important quality. Then you have the seven. Number seven is forgetting the ox. The person rests alone. And then you just have a little person gazing at the moon by a little hut. And the ox is totally gone. And all this for that. You know, all this looking for the ox. And now, no need of the ox anymore. And to me, this is when, in a way, we move from I am spiritual to there is awareness happening. I try to be aware, I try to be wise and compassionate, but it's when there is not so much anymore this separation between the meditation and the daily life. And that's what, to me, these meditation retreats are very important as a training ground. But the training ground is so that when you go into your daily life, you don't become picketing meditator. Everybody must become a meditator. Everybody must be a secular Buddhist. That's the best one going now. But on the contrary, to how can I bring what I cultivated here in my life in an humble, caring and careful way? How can I listen to people? How can I talk to people? How can I bring in a small way this quality in where I work, this quality when I am with my family, this quality when I am with myself. And I think this is very much what all what we did this week is really about. Not to become precious about it, but actually to, so that it helps us to be more in life than less in life. So that it's not for us to back to the little cloud with the little motorized thing, but actually that we can be more aware in a kind, caring and careful way to ourselves and to others. 
in small ways. It doesn't have to be a heroic and saving the world. But how can I be nicer to the postman? How can I be trying to change the atmosphere at work? Once we were teaching this uh, working retreat, and uh, the people come in the morning before they go to work, we give a little instruction, little meditation, and then they go to work, and then they come back and we talk about how was the day. And Stephen suggested one thing and I suggested another. And so Stephen suggested that today when you go to work, can you try to be aware to what you are doing? But not in a self-conscious judging way, but just to be present to what you are doing. Your body, the way you are, the person you are working with. And try to stay present and not go into this being ahead of yourself, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And then me, what I suggested is, can you look at speech, speech at work? How do you speak to each other? Can you speak to each other and with each other in a different way? And then we met again, and there was two, two people who said it really made such a difference, just that little exercise. Because one said, generally, I go to work, and before I even start, I am stressed. There is this to do, that to do. And in order to be efficient, I thought I needed to be ahead of myself. I have to think two things ahead in order to be efficient. And so she decided today, just for a day, let's see what happens. I'm just going to be present to what I do, and not ahead, ahead. And it was such a discovery, she said, I was so much more efficient because I was so much more present. And once I had done it, I could leave it. Instead of having the feeling I had half done it because I was already there. And she said the day flowed and it was so unstressful. It was like lack of revelation to through creatively engaging with the present, being able to be present, leave it, Next thing, be present, leave it, next thing, without any strength. And the other one, the other person, she, they were doing kind of pottery. And generally she was not so happy about the atmosphere because they generally were lost of a kind of nasty gossiping. And encouraged slightly by what I suggested, she went there and she gently suggested, what about if today we speak about something else? that we don't kind of, you know, talk about people who are not here or we talk about something interesting or whatever. And just her saying that, somebody else picked it up and the five of them had such a pleasant day, not kind of, you know, gossiping so much about people who were not there. And it really made a difference. So it was a small thing to try to do. So I think that's what this picture is about. I have practice here, and so what you, when you're going home, it's not, oh, wait a minute. You know, in order to be kind, I need to do loving kindness for 10 minutes, and then, you know, let's get on with it. But it's more you have developed something that then, in your own creative way, you need to explore in your daily life. Then you have the next picture, number eight. The ox and the ox herder are both forgotten. And there you just have a Zen circle, you know, just one of these black lines. So all this effort, and then now they're gone. And so often people think this is it. Number eight is the most important picture because this is a picture about not-self, emptiness, awakening. But it's only number eight. And it is true, sometimes as we do meditation, we can experience emptiness, or we can experience oneness, or we can experience total, full-heartedness. So we can have this experience where we actually feel very differently. But that's a key word, we feel differently. It doesn't mean that suddenly we don't exist or suddenly, forever after, we love everybody. 
But it allows us, by releasing our hold, to experience ourselves in a different way. And personally, I think this kind of experience to see as nurturing, because it makes us see, I, I don't need to always be like this. I can be otherwise. It's possible to feel otherwise. Once I was sitting in meditation, and suddenly I had this experience that at that moment there was nobody I could not love. That my love really extending to everybody, even the people I had trouble with at the time. Everybody was included in it. And of course it feels wonderful when you experience it. But then, like all things, it's impermanent. And then the challenge is, how can I go back into the world? And when I see people I have difficulty with, how can I creatively engage with them? doesn't mean I'm going to love them and kiss them and everything is fine. But knowing myself, knowing them, how can I creatively engage with them? Should I avoid them for a little while? Should I try to find a way to talk to them about everything but the problem? Or can I talk about them about the problem in a non-aggressive way? So to me, that's why creative engagement is not just doing one thing, one size fits all, but that it's back to conditionality, adapted to what goes on. And then this feeling of emptiness. What does it mean, this feeling of emptiness? Well, here you will feel it, but when you go into daily life, I mean, things are not empty. I mean, but can I relate to them, seeing them more conditional, in a less fixed way, in a less solid way? Can I see it more as conditional, that things arise upon condition? Can I try to understand this condition? In Korea, generally, if you have a big experience, you generally rush to the master and you say, Master, Master, I have this great experience. And so one this young monk rushed to the master cousin and said, Master, Master, everything is empty. I am awakened. And master cousin took his stick and hit him and the guy said, you see, not everything is empty. <laughs> so in a way, to see that the emptiness is not just something that floats about and then you see everything is empty. But actually is to see how things arise out of condition in order to help us to creatively engage with the condition. And then you have the number nine, returning to the original place. And there you get just like a kind of um, something from nature. So you have either bamboo, or you have plum blossom, or you have cherry blossom. And this, I think, is kind of to take us a little away from this is special. That this Dharma, this thing, this meditation, this retreat is amazingly special, so I am amazingly special too. But more, that actually this helps me to find my humanity and to the, see the humanity in others and to see life in others. And so that I don't have to look for a special teaching or a special teacher, but that actually everything can become a teacher. I mean, my, my Master Cousin, our teacher in Songwang Sai, used to say, everything can be a teacher. An orchid, a bird singing, anything. In, um, when I was in uh, South Africa uh, last time, I mean, it's many years ago now, but we go to this center where they're really good with, a, uh, it's a bird sanctuary now, really. I mean, they don't put the name bird sanctuary, but it's a bird sanctuary and a tree sanctuary. And so what you get, one of the birds you get in South Africa, I mean, you get lots of lovely birds, and then you get the Adida bird. 
which is one of my favorite birds. And it's kind of like an ibis. It's not possibly the ibis you think about. So, you know, there, you know, you sit in meditation, in this wonderful heart, you sit there, and then you hear, <laughs> like if it was there. That's a Dharma teaching, the teaching of the Hadida bird. <laughs> then you have the last one, number 10, appearing in the marketplace with gift. And there, it gets a little more crowded, so you get the little oxerter again, and then you get this kind of uh, person who has kind of like a little uh, beggar with a big bag on his shoulder. And so basically what this is saying is that this is not about going away from the marketplace, but actually this is to enable us to be more in the marketplace. So that instead of fighting with the marketplace, we can actually go back to it with gift. And the gift of wisdom and compassion that this is not so that we can get this amazing meditative, meditative state, I would say. But actually it's so that we can come back into the world. And that actually our existence in the world can add a little to this compassion, to this wisdom. And what the Buddha talked about very much, the harmlessness. Of course, if we can do something for the suffering of the world, I think this is important. But as the Buddha said, at least we can be harmless. And then from that, we can also be compassionate. We can also see how can we help others. But then we can help others with wisdom. Because I think compassion, you know, is an easy feeling to have when there is suffering. But what is important is not just to have the feeling of compassion, but how can we have a creative, wise response? And then within that compassion, you have the compassion for the self and the compassion for others. And what are our limits? So sometimes we can really be compassionate for others, really be heroic. And sometimes we can't because we're ill, we're tired, or for whatever reason, we can't. I remember when I was in Korea, whenever I appeared, because then I was a little special, you know. There was not many Western nuns in the time. There were about four or five of us, not even that. So we would appear regularly in kind of magazine. And if we appeared in magazine, you'd be guaranteed that we get get a letter from a young Korean person asking us to give them money. You know, we were, we should be compassionate, so we should share our money. The problem is that we did not have any, being monks and nuns. So I generally sent, you know, five dollars or what I had, but I said, you know, it's not because I'm a Westerner that I have lots of money. So then, however much I wanted to help them, I could not. But if they wanted to talk with me and me listening to them, that, at that time, this is something I could do. But now that we are more... There's so many different things that there is not, again, one size fits all, that we all must do the same thing, but that each in our own place, in our own life, how can I actually be, create a small wave. You know, when you kind of s s throw a pebble in a lake, you know, then generally you get a kind of a few, and then it goes. Can each of us be a little pebble in the lake of life, in the ocean of life, and create just a little harmlessness by harmlessness wave or compassionate wave? But not like kind of ethereally, I love all beings, but I'm nasty to my neighbor. But you know, really doing something, listening, 
helping, whatever it might be. To me, that it's in the doing of it that there is really the creative, wise response. So that's what I wanted uh, to say tonight. And so there is, I had a little note, and somebody was saying, top three tips on integrating. And I would say the talk was about that. So I hope the tips were included in it. So are there any questions or comments? I should be careful of using deeper because uh, it's what I call the depth myth. But let's say that what I'm saying is that as you practice, uh, especially as you practice on meditation retreat, and then you do what you know, ten, I mean, you know, several sitting, and you, then what happens sometimes is that you can experience what I call meditative state. And this meditative state can be of a different nature. You can have what I call the quiet and clear state. And so personally, I would not say that we go deeper. You know, I would say more that they happen. And personally, I feel these meditative states are more like de-grasping moment. And of course, in daily life, sometimes we let go intentionally. But I think also there is a part of letting go which actually happened by itself because the conditions are ripe. And so what I would say is that when you practice, then at times, suddenly you can feel quiet and clear. No, very little sort of no thought. And there is kind of just this kind of feeling which is quite different. And I would say the way to go deeper with that is actually not to do anything. That actually often people want to do something with it and then it goes. And I would say generally the thing to do is just to be with it, to experiencing it. And then it lasts a little while and then at some point it goes because the energy of it goes. Or you might sit and you might have an understanding. Suddenly you see something you never saw before, but so clearly. And with that kind, accepting uh, awareness. And so you explore it a bit. And then at some point, you know, with the energy of, of it goes, and then it's more like repetition. Then I would say, again, leave it. Or as I say, you might sit and you have certainly this experience of love. You really feel, really, this love. And again, just experience that. To be in a state when you have no trouble with nobody. I think it's very special. But generally, we have so, some trouble with somebody. It's quite nice to be in that state and just, in a way, I would say, enjoy it. And then it passes. Or you might have experience where it's kind of like, again, this feeling of emptiness, either emptiness or oneness. It's like the body feels different. You have the feeling there is no border. It's kind of like, it's nearly like the body feels like it has dissolved. But the body, I mean, you know, you, you hit and it's there. But actually the way we feel about it is so different. Because instead of this is me, my body, and everything in the body and mind kind of only defying this whole thing, it relaxes. And then we'll feel very different. Or you might um, sometime have uh, what I would call a mystical experience. This is a little rarer, but it happens too, depending. And that generally is very exuberating. It's kind of suddenly you have this Often people describe it as they feel like laughing or they feel very amazing joy. Yeah. And it feels a little like a feeling that, you know, you know for yourself without 
uh, analyzing it that everybody, for example, has a Buddha nature or something of that nature. And it feels really uplifting. But again, just to be with that, just that understanding. And then it goes. And then I would say after that, the challenge is, you know, can I see my neighbor as having the Buddha nature? That, I think, is a challenge. And so the experience, I think, often comes because of the way the retreat, uh, you know, in silence, lots of meditation, no responsibility, no work, so we can go quite, you could say, in depth. But then the challenge when we go back into daily life is to go into what I call the width dimension of the practice, so that it really enters and back to the Eightfold Path in all aspects of our life. We try to bring a little of this taste into it. The way we speak, the way we work, the way we act. It's not that you let them go, it's that they go. <laughs> well, generally, if you try to grasp them, they go even faster. <laughs> of course, there is a different, I mean, there are also certain techniques where people tell you how to do what I call jhana practice. And what I'm talking about is not jhana practice, which then is different. Because with jhana practice, it seems that you can do certain things where the thing will continue more. But then that's really not uh, my speciality. So then one has to kind of talk about people who specialize in that. Now, what I'm talking about is, I feel what happens is a de-grasping, which happens by itself. And if we don't grasp at it, actually it lasts longer. But I think it also has to do with a little the energy of being there. And then generally, at some point, the energy of being there goes. And then generally, the state goes with it. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I think, to me, it's kind of like, you know, oh, that's nice. It's kind of, you know, a warm bath. Mm, that's nice. But, I mean, if you stay too long in the warm bath, it becomes cold. So... You have to get out of the bathtub and, you know, move on. I think it's the same. It's the fact that it goes is just uh, the, the nature of things, I would say. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I don't switch. No, you have to be very careful. This is the one thing you have to be careful but with any meditation, but especially in this one. Not to do it with the body in a certain way. You know, to kind of, kind of, because that's what I did at the beginning. You know, and then you kind of, and then every time I meditated, it was, I mean, I still have a little thing like this, but not so much nowadays. So, Again, it's, that's always a problem with a suge suggestion. <laughs> what I, I meant is actually what we're trying to say is that it is not just a mind thing, you know, that you're trying to sort this out. But actually it's kind of like a body thing also, that you try to question with the body, but not in a way where you kind of tense up with it. And I would say the sensation takes generally a long time to, to, to really develop, feeling a sensation, a feeling of something. It's kind of hard to say, but it's kind of like, uh, it's just trying to get a body feel of it instead of just, you really don't want it to be in the head. So did you feel something? Is it what you said? No, in your body. Yes, my body. 
And, and then it, pa it passed. Yes. No, we, that's why you have to be careful. Because sometimes, you, you know, when you do it with the body, or something happens in the body, and then you generally try to relax it. Otherwise, sometimes it can really accentuate it. So, yeah, what's good? You come back to the equanimity phrases. Good idea. Yes. I mean, um, what you can do, you see there are different types, that's the thing. Uh, I think the sticks is very much the Japanese style, especially the Rinzai style. But uh, Soto have it a little sometimes. In Korea, in my days, they did not have it. Because, you know, they, the, the, the Korean outfit kind of like, can be stroppy and they would kind of, I was not asleep, why are you, you know. <laughs> But nowadays they introduce it a little, maybe to be more traditional. I don't know. In my day they did not have it. Now they have it more. They only had it for the non-sleep week. So this, the way I taught it is very the Korean style and a specific Korean style. So if you're really interested in it, uh, there is like a starter book I could recommend. Is one I did of the teaching of my teacher, the way of Korean Zen. Then there is another book which is a little more um, philosophical by, um, you see, if you go on the, uh, another book by, I just forgot the name, I'm really uh, tired. So if you go on our website, Recommending Bull List, you have all the Zen texts we recommend. Otherwise, if you really want to have a good textbook, then if you send me your email, then I can send you the latest thing that the Korean, few Korean monks whom I know have put together the definite text about the questioning meditation. And some of it is very zeny, but a lot of it is really good about how to do the question and what is it about and things of that nature. So. It's not published, and I don't know if it will publish, it's kind of a little complicated, but I can always send the text as a private, personal thing if anybody is interested, because I think it's a very interesting text. Also, there is another text which I have, which is very interesting, of a Korean monk who has studied in America in the university, and he wrote a book, an article about three different Zen teachers in Korea teaching the wadu, the question, very differently. And so it's very interesting to see that, you know, you have one question, and actually you can have a very different style of teaching it. So if, if you're interested, you can always send me an email, and then I can send you the relevant text. Or you can look at the... And one of my favorite texts, in terms of tradition, is Master Tawi, Swampland Flower. This is a... Um, a text that recently Shambhala redid, reprinted, and it's really, I mean, that's something I read and reread. But also the, the teaching of Master Kuzan, or I wrote a book called Principle of Zen, where I look at the different uh, type of Zen. 
and that is um, you can find it second hand on the internet that's one of the principle of thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate